0: Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Welcome everybody to the Liberty Cafe. I'm very blessed that you could be with us here today. Well, if you live in Texas and probably around the rest of the country, you've you've probably heard about the great Texas freeze. We had the blackouts uh, that started on February 15th. uh, What turned What started off as just a very bad winter storm, really a historic winter storm for Texas, turned into something much worse as power went out for millions of Texas across the state, and that turned into water going out for millions of Texas across the state. Uh, Typical of government, uh, what made it bad in Austin as far as the water goes anyway, the power went down, so the largest water plant in Austin went out without electricity. Well, like every other water plant in the state, they had backup power, but nobody on location knew how to turn it back on. And so what happened was it was off for about three or four hours while they were trying to figure all this out. At the, that, at the same time, water was going out of the system really quickly because everybody had their faucets on dripping. And by the time they got the power back up, the water pressure was so low that they had to start shutting down water to people, to keep the water pressure up, to keep the water safe and healthy to drink. Matter of fact, that didn't even work, and they had to put everybody on the boil. So while some people were without electricity for maybe a day or two, a lot of people, myself included, were without water for about three or four days here in Texas. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today on uh, this week's Liberty Cafe. This is episode 34 and we're blessed to have with us today, uh, Robert Murphy. He has done a lot of work through in many different venues throughout his career. He received his PhD in economics from New York University in two thousand three. He's taught at Hillsdale College. He worked for Arthur Laffer. Uh, we we knew each other there. Actually, knew of him before then because he did a lot of has done a lot of work at the von Mises Institute and. And I think what stands out for me, for Robert, other than the fact he's a good Christian man, is that he has done so much work to bring true economics, which in my mind are Austrian economics, into the reach of, of just your average person like myself, whether it's, it's writing textbooks for kids or for high schoolers, whether taking big, complex books like a uh, von Mises' human action and bringing it down to the level where we can all understand it. He's done that and just propagated economics to the masses, but real economics and true economics. So I'm really glad to have Bob on the show with us today. Thank you for joining us, Bob.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill, and thanks for those kind words.
0: Well, sure. I haven't told you yet, but I'm, um, I'm going to be teaching a biblical economics class and a biblical government class uh, next year for a classical Christian uh, school that I'm working with. And we're going to use for, it's going to be half and half. And for the economics part, we're going to be using your lessons for young economists as the primary text for that. So I I really appreciate your help on that. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So Bob, you, you actually... Have followed Texas uh, a fair amount over the years you, you were here in Texas for a while up at Texas Tech uh, we've collaborated on on some things talking about Texas and uh, you wrote uh, some of the uh, uh, dr. Laffers um, uh, thinking economically things for us down here in Texas and then recently related to the topic we have here you wrote something about the uh, the great Texas freeze if for a lack of a better term to to talk about that. And, and the thing that stood out for me when, when all this got started, I mean, it was just Monday, Monday afternoon. And one of the first headlines I saw in a paper, I think it was um, it's in the Dallas Morning News. And it was a Bloomberg article, I think. And it, and it was talking about how the deep Texas freeze seemed to have caught the Texas competitive or deregulated market by surprise. And and so right off the bat, people were going after deregulation or competition, saying that just doesn't work for economics. But it wasn't much longer after after that that you started seeing the headlines that were proclaiming, well, you can't blame the freeze or the blackouts on Texas wind. It's not wind energy's fault. It's not renewable energy's fault. Uh, it's it's just the market. And they start pointing at natural gas and all those kinds of things. But then I saw the really great piece you wrote on uh, Mises.org that kind of laid out some pretty compelling arguments that renewable energy had a, played a large role in the blackouts we experienced here in Texas. So I was wondering if you could just uh, take a few minutes and, and start running us through that, that article and your premise behind it.
1: Well, sure thing. So you're right. And I, it's true. I was in Texas for a few years there at Texas Tech, but I since moved back up north. And so, you know, being out of the loop, I somewhat naively believed the the spin there, or let's say the interpretation that was being given to these events um, from the media. And, and there were even some libertarian-ish outlets too that were trying to like say, now, come on, let's not just have a knee jerk reaction. Cause as you know, Bill, you know, governor Abbott went on, I think it was Fox news or something in blaming wind. And there were those iconic photographs that we would see with helicopters trying to de-ice frozen turbines and stuff. So it, it did look like, geez, the the wind turbines all froze up. So that's a problem. Right. And so, yeah, there was this concerted effort to kind of uh, rebut that narrative. And so, it's not that necessarily anybody lied, although Paul Krugman's column was, you know, borderline, because um, he said wind is a small fraction of Texas's electricity. And, you know, as of t- in 2020, I think it was something like 22 percent, something like that. So um, but but the, the way the story, I think the way the general public understood what happened is, oh, yeah, there was a freeze. All the different energy sources, you know, including wind, but all the thermal ones. We're, we're, down because of the, of the cold. And, but the, the big, the big one, you know, the, the big reason things failed was because natural gas just didn't show up that day or you know that week. That was kind of the, like I said, some people said that in so many words and whatnot. And so then when I saw um, Rob Bradley and, um, and the IA Institute for Energy Research staff had their own um, articles on this. And that's when I started seeing some of the particular numbers and, and I realized, whoa, that's, that's not at all what happened. And so, what I did is just just to show the public, you know, what, what some of these numbers were. I went and to the EIA's uh, website, the you know the federal government agency that keeps track of this stuff. And so the I looked at the first day of the blackouts, so February fifteenth, twenty twenty one, is the first day, you know, that Monday I guess when the blackouts were implemented. And I compared that to exactly twelve months earlier, so February fifteenth of twenty twenty. And so number one, I showed that the total amount of electricity delivered during the first day of the blackouts was 24% higher, you know, measured in terms of megawatt hours, than it had been the, the year earlier. Okay? So what happened, it, it's not merely that the, the quantity, that the, the supply fell in an absolute sense. What happened is this would have been a record-breaking, certainly for winter, and this, according to some people, had the capacity been there even all time would have been record usage of electricity, you know, because people are turning up their thermostats and whatever during the, the, the real cold snap. And so the, the idea was that yes, the available electricity from these various sources couldn't rise to meet that unprecedented demand. So it's not that supply fell off a cliff. It's that demand went up to literally unprecedented levels, certainly for wintertime and that the supply from thermal sort couldn't rise to quite meet that. And so, so again, total electricity delivered was 24% higher in this first day of blackouts than it had been the last year, you know, during a more typical winter day. And if you look at how much electricity was delivered from natural gas on the day in question compared to 12 months earlier, that was up 91%. And so it, and when you look at, okay, well, how much was delivered by wind, that was down 72%. Okay, and then also too, like if you looked at the week before the storm hit, you, you see similar numbers. I think they're even more exaggerated, to be honest. I think natural gas was up, more, you know, like more than triple or something.
0: So yeah, I think the the week before, uh, wind had provided fifty eight percent of the electricity on the market, and during that period we're talking about, wind was only providing about ten percent.
1: Right, right, and so. So th- these are the, st- and then, and I, I won't go into all the, the, the other stats here, uh, just, you know, in the interest of people hearing this, in terms of the audio, it's hard to keep track of this stuff, but looking at solar, coal and nuclear, uh, the, the drop in wind was the highest in terms of that year over year, like looking at the prior February 15th compared to the first day of the blackouts, the drop in wind was the biggest drop and the jump in natural gas was the biggest increase. And so, my so my question was: In what possible universe does it make sense to say, "Oh yeah, what really happened on this Texas blackout was that natural gas, you know, didn't was was to blame, and, and wind didn't show"? up? So, in fairness, what the what people saying that what they mean, what they have in mind is that ERCOT, when it did its you know scenario planning in terms of let's make sure we have enough capacity online to meet the demand, should there be a bad storm or whatever, that they were just assuming at the outset, it could be a low wind day. So we're not even going to build in any assumptions about wind being there. And then do we have enough thermal in case there's record demand? And so then they went through and they thought they did. And so then in that scenario, they assumed so much capacity was going to be available. And then because of the freeze, actually, you know, the thermal plants couldn't expand to deliver quite what they had hoped. And that's the sense in which people are saying, Oh, Oh, you know, what What happened? ERCOT's plan failed because natural gas and the other thermal plants weren't able to do what they had assumed. But my, my point is that, that was that's like saying if, if the Chicago Bulls lose a game and Michael Jordan only scores 25, you say, oh, we kind of were hoping Jordan was going to score 40, even though he's still the MVP of the team, and to say, yeah, we lost because of Jordan. So, yeah, relative to your expectations, fine. But the idea that the defenders of renewables were saying wind didn't do anything wrong here, I'm going to say, okay, but that's only because everybody knew, any, any of these experts actually knew going into this that, yeah, you can never assume wind's going to be there. So that's kind of an odd defensive wind is to say it didn't do anything, but we knew it wasn't going to do anything, and so that's why it's not really the blame.
0: Yeah, yeah. so basically what you're saying is they build all this wind capacity. I, I think in Texas today it's thirty two. 32,000 megawatts. Or, or, or built out today, and but they weren't counting on most of that, and so they they might have gotten I, I don't even know what the numbers are, but let's say they got sixty percent of what they were expecting, maybe. But that's still like eighty or ninety percent of wind not showing up. They they just pretend like that other stuff doesn't even count, right? It's
1: you know yeah right. So what I on that that's a good point. So what I did what I did it's not in the Mises article article you saw that I did it in the follow up piece. Um, for the Fraser Institute. But y- yeah, because some people were talking about capacity and what I said, okay, I'm willing to play that game. And so I looked up the EIA's estimates. So for, it was for summer 2020 of what the maximum theoretical installed capacity for wind and natural gas were for Texas, you know, the Texas grid. And then I said, okay, take those max theoretical maximums and then multiply by 24 to say, you know, in a day, if these, if wind and natural gas were going at their theoretical capacity, how much electricity in terms of megawatt hours could they produce? Then I looked at February 15th, 2021, the first day of the blackouts, how much did they in fact produce? Right. And wind came in at like 10% of its theoretical capacity, and natural gas was like 46%. So again, natural gas was quadruple plus in terms of the capacity. So that's why I was saying that, yeah, to the extent that the subsidies for wind and mandates and the you know the fear of a carbon tax in Texas has meant over time that wind has, you know, has had an artificial expansion at the expense of other types. Clearly that was an issue going into this because yeah, the, the, the percentage of wind's capacity that actually was available on, on these cold days was well below that of natural gas.
0: Right. Well, of course, wind isn't the only renewable source we have here in Texas. We, we also have, um, solar power. And so I was wondering if you'd done any, any research to discover, how much uh, solar power uh, was generating uh, when the power started going out here in Texas, about one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I
1: guess the answer, I didn't look into that, but I'm guessing it was zero.
0: Yeah, exactly. The, the answer is, is zero because uh, just like the wind, the turbines need wind to produce electricity. Uh, solar panels need the sun. And, and so, you know, you know, I've mentioned this to some people and, and some people said, oh, well, you can't you can't discount solar uh, because it's not designed to run I- at night. And I said, well, I mean, that night happened to be when we needed electricity and solar didn't deliver either. And so its chief design feature on February 15th was also its chief design flaw. Yeah, I do
1: happen to I just have the EA chart here.
0: So, yeah, on February
1: 15th. And again, folks, we're doing that because that's the first day when the blackout started. Yes, yeah, solar provided two percent of the total megawatt hours for that twenty-four hour period. Wind was six percent. Natural gas was sixty-five percent. Just to give a sense of, you know, when we're saying what was the problem here and which energy sources came through in the crunch, again, it's it's weird to me that everyone's saying, "Oh, the problem was natural gas." You know, just to go back to my basketball analogy, you know, that's say, right. You, know, you can say, "Oh yeah, Jordan had an off day," but still if you had to pick teams again, would you want to pick Jordan or somebody else? You, you would always, you know, you want to, or the, in the draft, if you had another one, you know, another up and coming Michael Jordan, you, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, but he didn't perform so well in the last game, you know, so.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, so there have been talk at least among some of us in Texas for a long time about the, the growing problems with reliability of the Texas electricity grid. And, some people have been pointing to the fact that well it's an energy only market energy only market means that texas is the only state in the country where the government doesn't determine how much generation is being built right you know some some states are just the old rate of return kind of regulation where they just tell somebody to go out and build an electricity plant and and they do and then the the ratepayers just pay whatever they the government decides they they have to pay, and then you you know we've got these capacity markets where they kind of pretend like it's a market, but it's really not. And these generators just get payments for hanging around just in case the electricity is needed at some point in time. Although there's no guarantee they actually have the electricity. But in Texas, it, it's the government doesn't have anything to do with how much electricity there's going to be. It's just the market that decides that, and 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 that's actually proved pretty well. But but what has happened over time is that we've got more and more wind and solar coming in. And we're to the point today that it, when we get to our peak levels, and, and you talked about the, the peak level for winter uh, during the January or February 15th storm. But but it actually got up and it was a peak for all time. Mm-hmm. We, we hit our peak uh, demand um, for even the summer which has caught everybody by surprise nobody expected that of course nobody expected a one in a hundred or two hundred year storm either but it caught everybody by surprise and and so we we had the blackouts that everybody had actually been thinking might come during a hot summer Mm -hmm. is basically and then a lot of us have said well that's going to happen if it does happen it's going to happen because too many much wind and too much solar. And we're at a point now that if you look at the projected demand for this coming summer and how much electricity we have to um, to meet that demand, only about 88% of that comes from traditional thermal generation, from 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 a nuclear, from coal and natural gas. Uh, so we, we need any hot, really hot day in Texas this summer, we're going to need wind and solar coming through. And if they don't, we're going to be in trouble. So, so but as we saw during the winter, that it, it doesn't always come through. So, let me ask you this question. Why would an industry, and again, this is, you know, again, it's not the government building power in Texas, it's the industry. Why would an industry build a bunch of generation? that's unreliable and undependable and, and might not be online when generation prices are the highest during times of great scarcity where they can make the most profits. What, what's behind that? Any thoughts on that? Sure. And just a, a quick thing before I get to the
1: heart of your question there. Um, so something I only recently heard and, uh, and I don't know if, if you agree with this or, or you know, if you believe this too, Bill, that uh, cause, cause some like, People in northern states or in Canada, a lot of the pro wind people are pushing back against what happens. Say, oh, well, our turbines don't freeze up in here in Canada. We do a better job winterizing. So this isn't an it. And I think part of the issue is, though, that my understanding is that it's if you go ahead and do what you need to do so that the turbines do well in winter, then they don't perform as well like in the dog days of summer. And so since Texas, right. you know, this was a very that in other words, if they had it might not make sense if they if they were more prepared for a really unexpected cold snap, then in the summer, they wouldn't be as efficient. And then you wonder in the summer, Hey, how come wind didn't show up? So there's, there's that trade off there that wouldn't be so apparent, like in Canada, for example. Well, um, that's, that's actually question- the
0: same thing. That's actually the same thing with, with natural gas and coal too, because mm-hmm. you know, up, up North they have a lot of these things in buildings and, you know, facilities and buildings and sheds to protect them from the cold winter, but you can't do that when it's 110 degrees outside because everything would fry and burn up, including the people who are dealing with it. So it's the same kind of problem.
1: Um, So, but yeah, as far as your questions, so it's true that in many respects, you know, Texas from the state level is is less regulated than other jurisdictions would be, but still uh, there's, you know, there has been the federal production tax credit to subsidize the expansion of, of wind. And, and by the way, like I worked on this issue a lot when I was a, an economist with the Institute for Energy Research. And any time the PTC, production tax credit, came up, you know, was going was gonna to expire, and then, you know, there were lobbyists and, you know, fighting in Washington about should we extend it, AWIA, the American Wind Energy Association, or maybe it was Bliance, I forget what the last A stands for, but the, you know, the trade group for the wind producers, They would produce charts and stuff showing, hey, if you get rid of the the federal production tax credit, then installed wind capacity falls off a cliff. So they were, you know, they were fully admitting it takes these federal tax subsidies in order to expand wind capacity. So that, you know, that's not coming from me. That's coming from the pro wind people. And so, you know, they can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, this is just a market outcome. And this is natural because wind is so efficient. Oh, but we'd still need the PTC because otherwise who would install new wind capacity? So there's that element. Exactly. Um, also, you know, b- besides any particulars that were already in place, you can see why investors would be leery about installing new coal-fired power plants anywhere in the U.S. because you know, you know, Trump was kind of like a, you know, a, a, a miracle in terms of giving you a four-year window, but everybody knows that the, the, the way things are going, there's going to be an explicit penalty on carbon dioxide emissions. You know, prob- probably either direct regulation or you know through a tax or whatever permits. So you you can see how coal is at a huge disadvantage, and you know natural gas to a lesser extent because it's not as carbon intensive. So I think there's lots of reasons, even just from federal incentives and you know taxes, regulations, or the threat of future regulation that's looming, that that would affect the the mix of power in Texas and its. So generally speaking, I mean, in a pure free market, yeah, there's, there's niche roles for renewables and it could make sense because the, the primary advantage of wind is when it's blowing, you don't have to pay for that, right? You know, whereas others for, you know, you got to go in natural gas or coal, you got to go buy that stuff and bring it in. Whereas the wind is quote free once you have the fixed costs and the turbines up there spinning. But as you say, it's not reliable. So it could make sense even in a totally unregulated free market responding to market forces, you'd have some wind capacity. That's always coupled with backup, like natural gas that can quickly ramp up or down. But uh, the, the numbers I saw, I think the last year, the capacity for wind was something like close to 25%. That's and, right. And that, t- to me, like, no, that can't be right. And just another example to show how distorted these markets are in Texas, you know, there are periods where wind power in the wholesale market was be- was selling for negative prices. That the wind producers right. were paying the grid to take their electricity because, when you factored in the tax credit, they were still making money even though they were literally paying to take the you know the power from them. So, it's it's not hard to see why other conventional sources would be at a disadvantage when your competitor is willing to not just give away the product but pay people to take the product.
0: Yeah, you're right. And particular, you know, natural gas has some ability to ramp up and down during those period of times depending on the plant. But coal, and particularly nuclear, can't. They, they have to stay online. And so if the price starts dropping down, they have to follow the prices down and and sell it, whatever, even if it's at a loss for those guys. And so it, it makes no sense. I mean, it makes plenty of sense that people would be kind of leery about investing in those things uh, because of that, because of the their ability to make a profit, and then, like you said before, also because of their fear of regulations. And then, on the other hand, you know, Wall Street and other investors are just chasing these renewable energy subsidies and you know why invest in a natural gas plant that may or may not may or may not make you money when you can just build some wind turbines and and they'll make you money because just of the subsidies themselves.
1: Right, exactly. And and, I, and again, it's this isn't like paranoia or, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking on our part. I mean, this was the goal of the the people pushing these subsidies, and you know, that's that's the whole mantra that hey, we, we need to have a carbon tax because otherwise, private businesses aren't going to take into account climate change, and they're you know they're going to have too many coal fired power plants and things. So, it's uh, and like I say, the the wea folks every every time the PTC would come up for renewal, they would scream bloody murder and say we better push this thing through and renew it and extend it because otherwise, you know, you'll, you we won't have this huge expansion of wind capacity. So. When things are looking good they they have no problem saying yes it's government intervention that expands wind and, and solar at the expense of these other things but then when wind doesn't show up it's oh well this was just a market thing anyway and why why would any you know texas is basically the wild west laissez-faire capitalism at work
0: right well i'd like to talk also a little bit about just the problems that some of the things that you've been fighting against for a long time to try and Bring some common sense to is you know how mainstream economic theory uh, caused some problems here in Texas too. I mean, you've been fighting. I don't know if Paul Krugman is mainstream economic theory today or not, but he's probably a lot closer to it than the Austrian czar. And uh, and, yeah, and and so you know we've seen in Texas over the years this um, how have they really taken this construct of perfect. Competition, and we won't go into on, on the details of that, but it's basically just how they think the markets ought to work. And in theory, and they've, and regulators, and academics, and even policymakers have been taking that and actually turning it into public policy and laws. And you know, when it, it comes to antitrust theory when it comes to market power abuse. Oh, we can't let a company get too big because they might abuse their market power. And so we have to put these restrictions on ownership, which we have here in Texas. I think nobody can own more than 20% of the generation in Texas, for instance. And we've got all these things about, uh, there's ability to do emergency uh, cease and desist orders. They don't even have to go to courts in Texas to to tell somebody they can't do anything anymore. They can just tell them to stop at the cost of perhaps billions of dollars to a company in, in a high-priced market. And, and then most recently, which we've talked about a little bit, is the, the Public Utility Commission here in Texas looked at the price of electricity during the, during the blackouts, and it was trading at about $1,200 to $2,000 uh, a megawatt hour, which is still really, really high. But you, you expect those kind of prices during periods of scarcity. But they were thinking, well, since we're having blackouts, the power is really scarce and it ought to be at its maximum level. So they just arbitrarily stepped in and raised the price of electricity to $9,000 because of their understanding of, of market theory. So basically, you know, we have all these regulators and policymakers here in Texas saying, well, we don't really care what the market wants to do. We're going to decide what should happen based on market theory. How does that? I mean, how is that affecting not just the Texas electricity market, but all markets and all regulations these days? Okay, sure. So
1: great, great questions. Um, so a lot of what I'm going to say here is I'm um, just sort of uh, paraphrasing. I, I was talking with Robert Bradley earlier um, a few days ago, and you know he's he's an expert in Texas energy markets, and uh, and so he, one of his you know, what he was saying kind of dovetails with what you were getting at there, Bill, is that the conventional mainstream economists, yeah, they do have this idea like this boogeyman of market power, and they're very concerned about if you know one firm has has too much share of the of the industry or the market because then it has you know then it can set prices and in standard economics that you probably learned in undergrad, it's you want firms to, for for everything to be real efficient you want firms to be price takers that you know, they, they, their actions, their quantity offer doesn't affect what the market price is. And so to the extent that a firm has you know a, a big share of the market, then you don't get that anymore. And in the Austrian view that that's misguided that we don't need to get too deeply into it, but just the idea is, Hey, as long as things are voluntary, as long as there's open entry into the market, then it's fine. If one firm happens to just outcompete everybody or they're the first one to market and they sell a product or service that's brand new, well, of course, they're going to have a big market up front and you would let them do that as an incentive to go do research and bring new products to market. You know, that, that's the reward for being there first kind of thing. Um, and so in electricity in particular, there are huge economies of scale. And so that's why probably in a genuinely free market, you would see like majors, you know, in electricity, for, you know, just like how there's big oil companies and that's not necessarily a sign of instead of having like 16,000 little tiny oil companies, it might make sense to have some big ones or whatever. Likewise, in electricity, perhaps even more so that it, it makes sense, you know, there's cause there's so many economies of scale that you would see that. And so Rob's concern was that in the case of Texas, yes, there was this idea that what we need to do to have, you know, good competition and to keep prices low for consumers is to have mandatory open access and they have all these companies come in and bidding and you know and then the mar- and the wholesale market and thinking that a, a a bunch of firms is what it needs to look like in order for there to be genuine competition even if that means each one has a small share of the market and then you don't get it, the advantages of a lot of like the vertical integration and things and so that's that's partly what i mean even just something as simple as if the firm had a, a much larger regional uh, network then, if certain things went down in one area because of a storm, they could draw on other wares. If, if it's all splintered, then you, you don't have that that um, that capacity built in in terms of the, the firm level. So, just even little things like that. But, but yeah, right. the, I think it is sort of like an intellectual error to assume that what what competition looks like and what's good for consumers always has to be a bunch of little firms that each has a tiny share of the market, particularly in electricity. That's that's not probably correct. And so if regulators are imposing that and they want that outcome, then we shouldn't be surprised when stuff like this happens.
0: Yeah, that, that's a intellectual error that may co- wind up costing Texas consumers about $30 billion, uh, depending on wh- which is the price, mm-hmm. essentially, that the PUC raised electricity by. And depending on what happens at the Capitol over the next month or two, uh, Texas consumers, in some cases, companies may eat most of that cost on themselves. So these, these intellectual debates and, and academic types of uh, problems we have out there can actually cause real problems for, mm. for, for Texans and, and just all of us, right? And, and even from a liberty perspective. Right.
1: And ju- just uh, to expand on what you just said there, it, it is ironic that the, the critics are alleging, oh, we tried deregulated free market capitalism and electricity in Texas, and look what happened. And yet, we're debating whether the PUC, which set the price, set it right or not. Like, that's no, yeah, exactly. You know, a, group, a group of experts who set prices that's what happens in the Soviet Union. That's not what happens in capitalism. So, say what you will about that, but that's not laissez faire capitalism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're running a little long, but. And that, there's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about. For instance, I'd love to have some conversation with you about your views on anarcho-capitalism, because I love listening to you talk about that. I have some disagreements, but we don't have time for that today. But, but I would like to ask you uh, one thing. Just So I, I know you're Christian, and, and you do a lot of writing uh, on that on your blog and talking about it on your podcast. And So tell me just a, a little bit, if you could, as we wrap up here, how do you take your faith— and and apply it to your thoughts about economics or or a public policy or those types of things.
1: Okay, um let's see. So so certainly I my Christian faith is is compatible with a uh, a skepticism of of government interventions even in the name of helping the poor, for example. And you know, this is a pretty common misunderstanding. I think people have that. Yes, you you can be, you know, we're we're supposed to help the poor. That doesn't mean you need to. What you got to do then is go vote for Bernie Sanders or you know Hillary Clinton. That that's you know those those two things are different. So there's a lot of um, people who are free market libertarians. And in my mind, like where what gets them there is because they have a sort of Darwinian, like a social Darwinist aspect to it. And hey, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, some of it coming like from Ayn Rand that no, we can't help those people. Just let them help themselves. And if they starve, so be it. And the human race will be stronger. Kind of, you know, it's a bit of a caricature, right. but there really are people out there who say stuff like that and kind of comments on the Internet. And so clearly, you know, I don't endorse that. It's like, no, there there is a duty to help the poor, but it's you know, it's a it's a personal thing, you do it with your own property and and so forth. Um and so, you know, the the Ten Commandments, you know, you're not supposed to steal, well, there has to be property for that commandment to even make any sense. Right. And so I think there is a strong biblical case for the fact that property exists and so on. Um and that yes, you have a duty for philanthropy and so forth, but that, that's you know, through your own efforts, not by voting for somebody else to take money from other people at gunpoint, basically. So that's that's one element of it. Um, and I would say, too, uh, like, just to give you another specific example of where my analysis differs from a more agnostic or explicitly atheist free market economist type. So when it comes to something like, um, you know, if there's a bad storm and then there's prices go through the roof for like bottled water and batteries and things like that. Most free market economists in this tradition will talk about well the, well, the reason you don't want to have laws against price gouging is because you know, the high price gives an incentive for people to bring a bottled water. It rations it. You don't want someone showing up at the store and just clearing the shelves out and buying all the bottled water. So the high price kind of rations it and then And you can go all through all that. But what I argue too is as I would say, look, at, as a Christian, if I were a store owner, and I knew it wasn't that I expanded my capacity or you know how much bottled water I had in the st- storeroom because I forecast that a storm was coming. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be able to charge more. So why don't I build another room and bring in – if it, it was just dumb luck, the sto- you know I didn't know a storm was coming. It hit and now all of a sudden my bottled water, I can sell for 10 times what I used to. I personally would not feel right keeping those windfall profits. So I still would – think the right thing to do is charge the market price or at least a a much higher price to ration it. But then I would go donate that to, you know, the red cross or whatever, like to give bottled water out to people who are destitute and can't afford the new. So things like that. So like to be more nuanced and say, yes, we do need to realize certain people are really struggling, but you know, so how do you, as an economist, use your understanding of what market prices do but also coupled with, hey, if you're relatively well off and you see people are struggling, you know, you should do what you can to help them.
0: Yeah, so in, in large part, it sounds like that it has to do with, from, from a Christian perspective, these responsibilities of caring for people and, and doing the right thing are on an individual level and up to individuals' responsibility rather than having the government step in and do it for us.
1: Right, well, right. So- just like, you know, if you want to help, the sick, you would need to have it. You would, it would help to understand how biology works. Right. And so you could study biology, you know, from a quote agnostic perspective or whatever, I mean, that might inform your view when someone's teaching you stuff about evolutionary theory and whatever, if you have a different view of things, but just, you know, as, as a neutral quote, scientific approach to understand how the world works. Is good for you to then be better able to help people or to do whatever it is that you think morally you're supposed to do. And so likewise, yeah, the the economics of Ludwig von Mises is is not explicitly based on the Bible in a sense, it's secular, but you can use that information then to supplement or to, to inform you as to what kind of policies would best promote, you know, helping people become self-sufficient and whatnot.
0: Yeah. And and you mentioned property too. And, and of course, property exists, we all know it exists, and, and those of us who are Christian believe it exists because, or, or know it exists, because God created it, mm-hmm. right? And, and so maybe uh, we ought to pay a little bit of attention to what how God told us about how to use our property you know, in, in Scripture, and, and that should inform our, our thoughts as well.
1: Oh, exactly, and, it, and there are some things too, like... Uh, uh, there are certain, I uh, sort of atheistic libertarian. Well, let me just, just put it this way: the standard Rothbardian, you know, named after Murray Rothbard, uh, approach to these things is that they believe in what's called homesteading. And so, hey, if you find something that's unowned, then you mix your labor with it or some capacity, and then you homestead it. Now it's yours. And they go through that. And this is where you know the genesis of property rights. And what's interesting, but then a lot of them also not not Rothbard, but like a lot of Rothbardians who are atheists recoil against the monster tyrant God as depicted in the Christian Bible. And so my point is, well, if the Genesis account were true, God created the whole physical universe. So according to your own ethical theory, he owns everything. So he's like a right. giant landlord. So he can say, hey, you can go into a different universe and do what you want there. But when you're on my property, these are the rules. And so right. my joke is that that libertarians love homesteading, except when it comes to Genesis. Then then that's when it, <laughs> no, no, that, that's not fair. <laughs>
0: Well, that's great. Well, I really appreciate you being on here today, Bob. Can, can you tell folks where they can find you and maybe your podcast on, on the web?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, just go to BobMurphyShow.com, and that's the, you know, the website that hosts my podcast. And then that would have links to everything else I'm doing, too. All
0: right. Well, thanks for being here, Bob. And we're grateful for having him today and also grateful for our sponsor for today's show, Texas Scorecard. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at TexasScorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.